complaints about long waits at baggage claim. Okay? People waiting for their bags. And so in response, the, the executives of the airport, they greatly ramped up the number of baggage handlers. Um, and that was perfect. The average wait fell to eight minutes. You had to wait eight minutes for your luggage. And that was well within industry standards, but it had absolutely no impact on customer complaints. So they start figuring out, and what they figured out was that it takes passengers one minute to walk to their baggage claim where they're supposed to pick it up, you know, the carousel there. But then they had to stand there for seven minutes, and they hated waiting. So what they did was they landed the planes farther away and moved the baggage, incoming baggage, to the farthest carousel. So they walked for six minutes and only waited for one minute, um, essentially. So uh, as a result of that, complaints dropped to near zero. Okay. What, what this uh, reveals is that we hate to wait. We would rather walk six times as far to get our luggage if we don't have to just wait. We're, we are bad at waiting. I ran across a survey by, of all people, Timex, and they were trying to, they were, they were figuring out what were acceptable weights for certain scenarios before we started to, to lose it. And here's, here's an example. If you shush somebody in a movie theater because they're talking, the, the average that you would give somebody is one minute, 52 seconds. Okay. I, I found that really hard to believe. So I had to go back to statistics class, and I found out that that's the average. Okay. That means like if they surveyed Mother Teresa and she would wait 20 minutes, okay, that's included. So they did another number. It's the median, for those of you who are statistics people. It's kind of the typical person. The same number were less than this person. Same number was more... Um, they only gave them 26 seconds. Typically, we give them 26 seconds before we tell them, hey, shh, watching the movie. Here's another one. Um, ask somebody talking loudly on a cell phone to keep it down. We would, on average, two minutes, 45 seconds. That seemed really high to me. So the typical person, 45 seconds. You got 45 seconds before they're going to shut you down. All right? Give a dirty look to a parent not addressing a loud baby. <laughs> two minutes and 41 seconds. No way, okay? Um, the typical person, 46 seconds. You got 46 seconds, parents. If your baby's in here, you got 46 seconds before the looks start a flying, um, I'm afraid. Uh, here's another one. Honk at a car in front of you once the light turns green. 50 seconds. Okay, okay. This is the one I knew Mother Teresa was in the mix when I saw this one, okay? No way. 13 seconds. And, and yeah, you all are probably still below average in, in that regard, right? Here's one. Acceptable weight on a first date, 4.4 minutes. Guys, on average, the ladies will grant you 4.4 minutes, but typically, you got 0.9 minutes on a first date. So you got like 54 seconds that you can be late before they start to hold it against you. Um, we, we are not good, as a people, we are not good at waiting. Even though um, 
statisticians tell us that as a nation we do we wait 37 billion hours every year we're still not good at it 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 chafes us and if there is a a little demographic niche of people who may be especially bad at waiting i think it's southern baptists i think I think our folk are really bad at waiting. We want to do everything rapid. We have rapid church planting movements that do things rapidly. And then it gets better when you do it more rapidly. And the more rapidly you can do it, the cooler that it is. The more We're all about that. We are get her done kind of people. All right? We'll just hang around. Do, do something. Right? Um, but it's interesting, as we start to look at the book of Acts together, one of the things that we see that God has granted us through Luke's record of the life of the early church here is um, little snapshots of the church. Just, just kind of a, a picture here and a picture there of what the church was like right, right out of the hopper when, when believers first began to gather in the name, in the name of Jesus. They are often exemplary for us so we can kind of hold them up next to our snapshot and say, do we look like that? How are are we doing with that? And and today we get to look at the very first of those snapshots in Acts of followers gathered. And often this one is just overlooked. Um, It's not talked about. And And I wonder, part of me thinks the reason is because this snapshot is of the church waiting. Okay, Waiting. So if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, we'll be looking at the back end of chapter 1 today, and I'd like to pray for us in that regard, if you bow with me. Father, have mercy on us. May your kindness come to us now through your word, by your spirit, such that we, we might begin, a snapshot of North Wake might begin to look like a snapshot of your, of your people right at the get-go, right here in the very first chapter of Acts. So um, give us an openness to what your spirit might say to us together and to each, each of us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week we went through the first introductory verses, first 11 verses of, of the book of Acts. And it focused on the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and when he ascended or went back to heaven. And in those 40 days, there were at least 10, probably more than 10, Jesus sightings. The, resurrection, the resurrected Christ kept showing up and teaching people about the kingdom of God. And in particular, um, he left his disciples with these final words. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those parting words Jesus left with his disciples, with us. But just a couple verses before that, he left this command to that particular band of disciples. In verse 4, he said, Uh, While Jesus is staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to do the dreaded thing, wait, okay? To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you have heard from me, which involved the sending of the Spirit. So we're going to pick up in verse 12 where their time, this little window of waiting for the church begins. In verse 12, the disciples did what Jesus said. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. 
So, first thing you notice about this snapshot of the church is that that's a, the disciples do what they're told to do. Okay? They're an obedient lot. They go back to the city. It's not far, maybe three quarters of a mile or so. They go back to the city and they wait. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they go back to the city, they go back to an upper room and they gather there. The disciples are there and this collection of ladies called the women are there. And likely these were uh, at least those ladies who witnessed the resurrection. Um, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, I'm sure there were others. Um, throughout the ministry of Jesus, and we're going to see in Acts, throughout the life of the early church, women play a vital role amongst the disciples, inordinately so for, for this time in history. The disciples are there. These women are there. Jesus' family is there, which is interesting because um, they thought Jesus was crazy at one point in time. You remember um, Mark chapter 3, when Jesus' family heard him, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Okay, But now, now here they are with the disciples in the upper room, devoting themselves to prayer. And... Uh, you know, for those of you who have family that think you're crazy for following Jesus, hey, be encouraged, okay? Their, their current state need not be their final state. F families come around, okay? So keep praying, keep loving, keep sharing. There's, there's a beautiful little hope for, for families here. The disciples are in that upper room, they are waiting, but they are not passive, okay? They are prayerful. Verse 14 says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. And this is one of the predominant marks of the early church. You start looking at snapshots of the early church in Acts, and they were praying. Let me just show you a few of them. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Acts chapter 4, it says they lifted their voices together to God, and then they, they prayed. Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Acts chapter 21, it says when our days there entire ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, they prayed. Okay. Take a snapshot of the church gathered in the book of Acts, and chances are you'll find them praying. Um, now, if this, in fact, is one of the most consistent marks of the church as we see it birthing in Acts, um, how is it that so many of you do not join us for prayer when we gather for prayer each month? Okay. And, I, and I know there are really good reasons, lots of good reasons, um, and I, I respect those, want to honor those, 
but you don't always have a good reason. We gather, this is a shameless plug, okay? We gather every Sunday night, first Sunday night of the month, in this room, 6 o'clock, for an amazing time in prayer, okay? Our prayer meetings are one of the best things that happen here. They're really amazing. And uh, no one has ever come up to me afterwards and said, colossal waste of time, should have stayed home and watched the game. Never, okay? That's never happened. You should come. It's the fastest hour of the week. You'll think, an hour in prayer. God, I can't pray for three minutes. It's fast. God works. Um, so, shameless plug. Uh, we see it in the snapshot of the early church. You should be, when we take a snapshot out of prayer meeting, you ought to be there. Okay? Um, we should gather for prayer. You should join us. Okay? So, while the believers are waiting, um, they are marked by prayer. Waiting is something God asks us to do often. Um, sometimes that comes through our own choosing, sometimes not so much. Um, sometimes it comes by the Spirit's prompting, sometimes it comes by inescapable circumstances. Many of you singles are waiting to be married. Many of you who are suffering are waiting to be healed. Many of you who are sorrowful are waiting for joy. Many who are unemployed are waiting to be hired. The aimless are waiting for direction. Um, waiting is an inescapable part of what it means to walk by faith. Okay? It is simply unavoidable. And if you, if you listen to the Psalms, it's everywhere. Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting is not easy. Requires courage and strength. Um, Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Waiting is how we demonstrate trust oftentimes. Not just in active obedience, but in waiting. Okay. Psalm 39, now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Waiting oftentimes is the way we transfer our hope from our own abilities to God. And, and this little band of believers is doing that. Okay? They have been sent back to the city. They've been commissioned to witness for Jesus. And he's told them, stay in the city. Don't leave the city. Um, when we wait, as we learn from this little gathering of believers, we are to wait prayerfully, devoted to prayer. As, as they were. Now, back in verse 13, it lists this name of disciples, right? Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And if you do the math, um, there's only 11, okay? not, not 12. And this is odd because it was always the 12. It didn't even sometimes refer to them as the 12 disciples. They're just the 12. And now they come up a man short, and this is a problem. This is not like the Big Ten, right, where you can have 12 teams, still call yourself the Big Ten. Um, this is a problem um, for the disciples, and, and Peter is addressing that in the verses that follow. He says uh, in verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120. 
So just as an aside, we go from 120 now to a couple of billion, right? All started here. And what Jesus said would happen, we would be witnesses, it's happening. So the company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language uh, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Luke records for us here how the 12 became 11, and he does it really graphically, right? Judas fell headlong, burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Okay? Th- thank you, Luke, for that vivid description. Why, why all the gory details? Why not just say, he passed away? Um, on the one hand, you get a sense, Luke is a doctor, right? You get a little sense that he's kind of being doctorish here. He's telling you all the gory details. But I think the point is to show the severity of judgment for the one who, for money, for money would betray his friend and his rabbi. One who would, for money, come to be known as he who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. And it is, it is the severity of this kind of judgment for those who betray Christ is why our church um, practices church discipline, or as we prefer to call it oftentimes, church rescue. If there really is a severe judgment who turn from Christ and dishonor him, then those we covenant to love, we will pursue to the very last opportunity to bring them back. But don't miss that one of the 12 was the betrayer. Okay. One of Jesus' hand-picked 12 disciples was the betrayer. He did it for money. And the judgment upon him was terrible. And this is, of course, a call for us to guard our hearts. Don't let your heart grow cold towards Jesus. If you sense that, you need to repent of that and deal with it decisively, lest it lead to a place where you do not want to go. Now, when you read, um, it's often pointed out that when you read this account of what happened to Judas and you read the account that Matthew wrote in Matthew's gospel, There are a couple that seem to be pretty significant contradictions, apparent contradictions between those two accounts. Um, In Matthew, for instance, it's the leaders, the the Jewish leaders who buy the field, not Judas. And in Matthew, Judas hangs himself, whereas here we get this graphic portrayal of him falling headlong and his innards bursting open and all all that. Um, So... 
when, when I face these kinds of things, and I've got two differing things that the scriptures seem to teach, it helps me to ask whether or not these are apparent contradictions or necessary contradictions. In other words, is there a way that these things can be harmonized or are they just unreconcilable? Are they necessarily contradictory? And in this case, I think these are apparent contradictions that people have helped us think about. There are ways these could work together. Um, Some have suggested that two different fields were purchased. Judas bought one. The religious leaders bought another one. Some have said that it's attributed to Judas because they used his money to buy the field. And so even though the leaders paid down the money, they were essentially using Judas' money, so it's attributed in one to Judas and another to the leaders. Um, Some have suggested that um, even though in one account it says he was hanged, in another account we get this graphic ripping open thing, he may have been hanged and then either he fell or he was cut down. And at that point, after hanging there for a considerable amount of time, he burst open. We get Luke's graphic portrayal of that. Um, but what I want you to see by that is um, these, though they appear to be contradictions, they are not necessarily that. Okay? There are ways that Christian scholars over the years have helped us think about how these might be resolved. And though we don't know exactly how that is, we can see that, that there are ways to harmonize this, and it need not stick out as an irresolvable, necessary contradiction. Look, though, at verse 16. Uh, Peter says, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Um, Peter says, The scripture had to be fulfilled. And then he quotes, if you look down in verse 20, from Psalm 69. um, And he says, these psalms of David came by the Holy Spirit. And he's clearly saying, the psalms are the words of God for us. Okay, And he says down in verse 20, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it. And Peter seems to be taking a psalm that David applied to his enemies. Of course, David was Israel's great king. And he takes, and he, and they, his, he was praying that his enemies would suffer this judgment because of their opposition to God's king. And so Peter says, if that's true of David, how much more true would it be of the great king Jesus called the son of David? And his enemies. So if this is what the Psalms apply in judgment to to David's enemies, it has equal application to Judas. Peter says, Judas' betrayal had to happen to fulfill what the Psalm had predicted would happen. And he calls what, what Judas did Judas' wickedness. Um, And he says that that wickedness had to happen to serve God's purposes. And what Judas did was terrible. And in their culture especially, um, Craig Keener writes, uh, 
Treachery or betrayal was considered one of the most heinous offenses in antiquity, a breach of a sacred trust. Most ancients regarded with disgust traitors against their own peoples. Such behavior was worthy of death and invited the hatred of even one's family. Disloyalty to friends likewise remained despicable. In particular, to injure or kill those with whom one had eaten at table was a terrible offense from which all but the most wicked would normally shrink. And Peter says, even this great wickedness, this great betrayal, was part of God's good plan to accomplish our rescue from our sin. Even when Judas chose to serve as a guide for those who would arrest Jesus and crucify him, even this was part of God's good plan. Peter says it had to be that way. This was not something that got crazily out of control because God was busy somewhere else and he turns around and, oh no, Judas had betrayed. No, this was part and parcel of God's good plan. It had to be that way. It was predicted by the psalmist a thousand years before. There is no betrayal, no wickedness that we will face that's beyond the good, loving, restoring purposes of God. If Judas' betrayal of Jesus can fit into God's good, sovereign plan, then God will really do what he promised in Romans 8, where he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, all things, for those who are called according to his purpose. What God has promised must come to pass, Peter is saying. It must be fulfilled, even if it takes a thousand years. God's promises will come to to pass, such as the loving, redemptive faithfulness of our sovereign God, even over the greatest of wickedness, such as what Judas did. Peter says it had to be fulfilled. And then right after that, he cites another psalm. Okay, so he says it's it's written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it. And then he quotes another psalm. And he says, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter now quotes from Psalm 109, and he applies it to their situation, that even as um, David's enemies were removed from their position, now Judas has been removed from his position And someone also must take his place. Um, This must happen, he says. And the emphasis this time is not so much that it is going to happen as that they must align their lives with that happening. So they must obey this psalm's teaching. They must honor God's words and align themselves with what he said must be. And so again, we look at this snapshot, and here's what we find. A people doing what they are told. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They understand the Psalms to indicate that this is why this happened to Judas and what must now be done now that he has defected. 
Um, and they do it. Um, they did as they were told. It does raise the question, though, why are they so concerned about 12 instead of 11? Couldn't they have got by with 11? Why did there have to be 12? And again, they understood Psalm 109 to teach them that they were supposed to replace someone, replace Judas with someone. But the idea of 12 apostles chosen by Jesus has significant meaning on a couple of occasions. In Luke 22, Jesus is teaching, and he says to his 12 disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's this consistent perspective that there are apostles, 12 apostles, who will reign on 12 thrones with the Lord in judging um, his people. For instance, in Revelation 21, describing the new Jerusalem, the holy city, heavenly city, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, not 11, 12, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Judas has been removed from that, not, not because he died. Okay? Other apostles will die and they're not replaced. But because he defected, he denied the faith, he denied Christ, that's why he's removed. And another then must sit on those 12 um, thrones, the 12 foundations where uh, the apostles of the Lamb would sit. Um, so Peter says, this is the kind of man that we are looking for to become this all-important 12th apostle, right? One of the men who have accompanied us, Peter says, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, okay? beginning from the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Peter says it has to be somebody who was with us from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry when he was baptized until the day he went back to heaven. Somebody that's been faithful for those three or so years. Okay? That's the qualification. Someone who's been with us the whole time. Someone who's been faithful. Someone who knew Jesus and knew what Jesus taught well. That's the kind of man we're looking for. Okay. In addition, it needed to be someone who witnessed the resurrection. Okay? Because that's what they're going to be charged to do. And it's interesting, though, she's mentioned here, and this is the last mention of her in the New Testament, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not even considered to be the 12th apostle. It's a popular thing now in film and in books to kind of assert one of the Marys in there, especially Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's here, but she's not considered. The 12th disciple was to be a man who was amongst them for beginning to end faithfully. Um, a witness of the resurrection because that's what they were assigned to do, the apostles. They were chosen to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. And the resurrection, this is so important because the resurrection changes everything. Okay? I love the way Tim Keller put it. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. 
if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. They were to be witnesses of his resurrection, as are we. But amazing as it seems, the resurrection can sometimes become kind of a poor stepchild to the cross, right? You're, you'll hear a lot of people talk about, we want to live a cross-centered life. But never many people say, we want to live a resurrection-centered life. Right? Uh, and even though the apostle Paul sometimes will sum up that whole passion of Jesus, uh, by, of death and resurrection, by just focusing on the cross, um, Clearly here, the apostles are called to be witnesses of his resurrection. I remember a long time ago, I was explaining the good news of Jesus right here uh, in this room and uh, explained it as best I could, encouraged the congregation to embrace it and believe it, and went down afterwards and, of course, uh, got all the, all the post-sermon conversations that happened. And one lady came up to me and she said, um, don't forget, he rose on the third day too. I had left that out. I had talked about his death on our behalf, hadn't even mentioned the resurrection, and she just gently took me aside and said, um, don't forget that he rose. And it's a good admonition because as Keller says, that is the deal. That's what we witness to. That's what we proclaim. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose on the third day. Around Easter, we say, he is risen Good deal. You guys remember. He is risen. risen Exactly. We'll get more enthusiastic as Easter gets closer. But um, I love the way Ken Davis writes about it. He, He tells a story about a woman who looked out of her window, saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of a neighbor's rabbit. Okay. Her family did not get along well with these neighbors, and so she knew this was going to be a disaster. So she grabbed a broom, pummeled the dog until it dropped the now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth, and then she panicked. She didn't know what to do. So she grabbed the rabbit, took it inside, gave it a bath, blow-dried it to its original fluffiness, combed it until that rabbit was looking good, snuck into her neighbor's yard, and propped the rabbit back up in its cage. An hour later, she hears screams coming next door. She asks the neighbor, what's going on? And the neighbor says, our rabbit, our rabbit. He died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. John, John Ortberg takes that comment, and he, he says, uh, people in the ancient world knew dead rabbits tend to stay dead. They also knew, he said, dead rabbis tend to stay dead. N.T. Wright said, there were many messianic movements in the first century. In every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome as Jesus did, and then this is what N.T. Wright says, In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers of that rabbi claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. And we now, because of the witness of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, we know better. He is risen. 
He is risen indeed. And that's the message of hope that we take to a world with no, no hope as they stand at the graveside of their loved one, as they stand near a hospital bed. Okay. We know better because of their testimony. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and we have benefited from their testimony, and now we believe. So, verse 23, based on that criterion, someone who'd been with them from the beginning, been faithful, knew Jesus, was a witness of the resurrection, they put forward two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and another guy named Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So again, take a snapshot of the church, right? Of, of these early believers anyway, what, what are they doing? Praying. Don't, don't let the whole casting lots thing, let you miss that, okay? They pray. Then they cast lots. This is really their decision-making process. They choose wisely someone who had demonstrated faithfulness for years, who knew Jesus, who knew his teaching, who was a witness of the resurrection, and then they prayed, and then they cast lots, Lots were likely uh, some kind of a stone uh, in a bag. Each, each one represented one of the two men, and they shook it around, cast one out prayerfully, and Matthias' name came out. And he, that was the means, following wisdom, following prayer, that they chose between two equally qualified men. Wisdom, prayer, then casting lots, and they chose Matthias which, by the way, is exactly the way that Greg Mathias became an elder at Northway. Okay. <laughs> exact same methodology that we use. Um, now, this is the last time you see the casting of lots used in the New Testament. Interestingly, it happens prior to the outpouring of the Spirit upon God's people, and when the church faces decisions throughout the book of Acts, in, 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 as we'll see as we study it, uh, there's an explicit reliance on the Holy Spirit casting lots um, no longer um, plays a factor. Um, so, first snapshot we get of believers in Jesus gathered together in the book of Acts, right? We see that they are marked by obedience. They did as they were told. Um, their Lord said, wait. They waited. The scriptures say, choose a 12th apostle, they choose a 12th apostle. They were marked by obedience. They were marked by faith. They trusted that God's overwhelmingly good plan could encompass even the wickedness and swallow up and redeem even the wickedness that Judas did when he betrayed Jesus. And we look at that snapshot and we see that this, were, this was people from the, from the get-go who were devoted to prayer their, their decisions were bathed in prayer. And so this morning, should a snapshot be taken of Northway, 
Let's just ask the Father that these things might mark us as well. Okay? Would you bow with me in prayer, please?